So, so welcome everybody. It's awesome to be together again, and uh, we have uh, Good Friday and Easter coming up. So it's a perfect time to talk about the story we just saw, where those are the few days leading up to, to Jesus' crucifixion. And what an awesome way to do a scripture reading. You know, it just really gives you an idea of what it was like to be Mary and what it was like for her at that time to, to be with Jesus. Uh, you know, sometimes the things that we do are interesting, but sometimes also the reason why we do them is interesting. And so oftentimes, Jesus, when he talked with people, when he shared with people, when he was engaging people, both the Pharisees, whom he had a lot of disagreements with, but also his disciples that he tried to encourage, it wasn't just so much what they were doing on the outside that was important, but it was really more the heart's attitude, the motivation that they had for doing it. And so it's one of the big questions we should ask ourselves is, what is our motive for serving Christ? Why are we serving him? In the, in the story we just saw, it's, it's not so much a question between Judas and Mary about what they're doing or what they're saying, but why are they saying it? What's, what's their real motivation behind why they have the things that they're doing? Why, why is Mary bowing down and washing, anointing Jesus' feet? And why is G- Judas so calloused and cold sitting there? What's, what's going on inside their heart? And the reason Jesus is so interested is that our motive reveals our heart. Jesus was always concerned with what's going on inside of our heart for it's from what comes out of a man, right? He wasn't so concerned with what goes in, but what comes out of us. And what does come out of us is an expression of really what we've been feeding our hearts with. And so you see two completely opposite people. Probably the most best description you could see of the most diametrically opposed people of the two, Mary and Judas, who were sitting there together. And so you really have two motives for serving Christ. This morning, I want to challenge us to ask ourselves that question. What is our motivation in serving Jesus? Why are we serving him? Why, why are we here? Why are we reading the Bible? Why, why do we love him? Why do we make the decisions that we do? What motivates us? The Western world church is under attack, as you might very well expect. People's motivations are changing as to why they're serving Christ. And Judas is the best example we have as to one of the biggest challenges facing our Western world church about some of the misconceived ideas behind why people serve Christ. The Bible's filled with two-way analogies. Uh, One of the best ones that that you see in the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jews had a great expression or way of explaining themselves where they had the right path and the wrong path. And perhaps this is best exemplified in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter it. But narrow is the path, and difficult is the way to life, and only a few are those who find it. And so we see that similar idea, a very Jewish way of expressing ideas, where they had these two completely opposite ways of looking at it. So we'll look at that with Mary and with Judas. The other thing that's important to understand in this particular story is the use of symbolism. Symbolism is... Highly important in understanding what's happened in this particular passage. And oftentimes we look at it and say, well, you know, isn't, uh, isn't it just direct? Doesn't Jesus just come right out and say, like in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Does, does Jesus, does the Bible actually get into symbolism? And, and if so, how do we really know what those different symbols mean? And so in this particular story, we'll look at a few different examples of the symbolic messages that Christ is trying to send us. And so in this particular story, the money, the part where Judas says, hey, you know, couldn't this have been sold for money? The money is just symbolic of what's really happening inside of his heart. The money is not really the only issue that's going on here. 
And so the use of symbolism in the Bible will help us to understand the symbols that Jesus is using in this particular passage. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? So Abraham is taking his son up and about to be sacrificed. And the Bible says in Genesis 22 and 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Perfect time of year to think about that passage. Does that remind you of any other father who laid wood on his son as he was heading towards being sacrificed? In John 19, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to Golgotha. And so we see a highly symbolic message that the Old Testament is giving in Abraham and Isaac. Another great passage that talks about symbolism. There's, there's two mass feedings in the Bible. There's the feeding of the 4,000, and there's the feeding of the 5,000. And after both of those take place, the disciples come and ask Jesus some questions, and he responds. But interestingly, he responds with the symbolism that was used in the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. Here's what Jesus says. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not get understand? And the interesting thing is that there's no more explanation after this. If you read Mark 8, verse 21, it doesn't explain what Jesus just said. That's just, it just ends, and then it goes on to the next thing. So what was he saying? Well, it's a highly symbolic message that he's saying. So if we try and unpack that, we look at that and say, well, the first part is the word loaves. And as we study the word loaves, we think back to the message in John where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So he's giving a message here. He's symbolically telling us that this is a story about me, about me being the bread of life. Perfect day to have communion. This is amazing. What's the next piece? Broken pieces. That comes up twice. What would that be symbolic of? Yeah, it's Christ dying on the cross. Take this. This is my body that is broken for you. So again, a highly symbolic message where Jesus is talking about his broken body that he's going to give. What's the next part that's symbolic here? Well, the number 12. When you hear the number 12 in the Bible, what does that make you think of? Probably the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples were Jewish, and that would have been symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is looking and saying, okay, I'm the bread of life that's being broken for the 12 tribes of Israel, but is that it? He goes on to say, there's the number seven. When you hear that number seven in the Bible, what does that remind you of? Seven days in the week, seven days of creation. Strictly speaking, six days because he rested on the seventh, but seven is the complete number. So in this particular passage, it's a highly symbolic passage where Jesus is saying, symbolically saying that he is the bread of life, that he has been broken to be the savior of Israel and the Gentiles, i.e. the whole world. And that's the message that he's giving. So sometimes Jesus uses symbols for us to try and understand what's going on. Other times he comes out directly and say it. And that's why in this particular passage, it's important we understand what do the symbols mean. So as we're reading our Bible, especially our Old Testament, highly symbolic where God is using copies in the Old Testament for the real thing that's happening in the New Testament. 
So what do we know about Mary? I thought that the actress who played Mary there, that was brilliant. Whoever thought that, that was a great idea to put that there because that, I think, really encapsulates Mary. How many women are named Mary in the New Testament? You know, I thought maybe two, three for sure. Well, interesting. There are six women named Mary in the New Testament. Three of them that you and I are probably most familiar with are Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, of whom seven demons were cast out, and Mary, the sister of Martha, we're going to hear about today, sister of Martha and Lazarus. So what do we know about this particular Mary? She's a very quiet person. You ever notice in the past, she's a very quiet, uh, gentle spirit. There's three stories that we know about Mary, and each of these stories gives us an insight into serving Jesus, and in particular, what our motivation should be. Judas and Mary in this passage are total opposites. And I know if you're like me, when I hear the word Judas, I almost tune out because it's like, well, I'm not going to forsake Christ, so whatever Judas has to say can't possibly apply, so let's just move on. But the challenge with Judas as we think about this particular passage is betrayal doesn't just happen in an instant. It's a process. And Judas was heading down a process that culminated with his deception at the end, his betrayal at the end. And so there are certain things we can learn about what not to do in Judas's life. Where was he slowly starting to go off the rails? Most of the time, deception doesn't happen in a moment. It takes time, even as us as followers of Jesus, to grow in our faith, to be serving him and loving him and praying and so forth. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't Instant growth doesn't just happen. Trees don't just grow overnight. Deception the same way. It doesn't just happen overnight. There's things that are happening slowly where the devil plants seeds and we either accept or reject those. So the first story is the one where Mary is listening at Jesus' feet. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. That's the same area we're going to talk about today who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. What do we learn about Mary in this particular passage? You know, there's so many great things here. The one word that for our particular time and our particular place in the world that really jumps out at me is the word distracted. You know, if nothing else, we live in a highly distracted culture. The ability for us to be distracted today is at an all-time high. To race onto our phones, computers, television, other means of communication, social media, There's so much that's vying for attention. And it's amazing that even here, she was highly distracted. How much more are we? And it's an important question for us to ask ourselves. How much of our love, our motivation in serving Christ is for him alone? And how much of it are we being distracted and pulled off into other things? The only Apostle Paul says, are we making the best use of our time? Not just are we making a good use of our time. Because sometimes being distracted is not just doing bad things. There's nothing inherently wrong with serving. I, I have the highest respect for anybody who can cook. I can't cook for anything. Anybody who can cook, you have my admiration. And you see, there's nothing wrong with, with Martha serving. 
but it's when all these quote-unquote good things in our lives or not bad things, benign things, you know, maybe watching a game or whatever, when these things start to crowd in, crowd in, crowd in, we have the danger of becoming distracted, much the way Martha was here. But notice how, how Mary, what her posture is, what her position is, she's sitting at the Lord's feet. You know, that's not by accident. That's highly symbolic of her heart's attitude. Am I submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Am I submitting to him and saying, Lord, I'm willing to allow you to be king over my life? It's easier to serve Jesus than it is to love him. It's easier to outwardly do things than it is to have a heart that surrenders to him and is passionate about him. And so she's sitting at the Lord's feet because she's willing to be instructed by him. Nobody can tell us how many minutes, hours per day we should be in the Word. That's for every person to decide for themselves. But, you know, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. Is that the honest representation of our hearts? Is our passion for spending time with God? Do we, when we see that idea sitting at the Lord's feet, does that, does that spark a passion in us? Say that there's so many things going on in life, but those few minutes when I have with the Lord or whatever, do I love, do I cherish those times? But Martha's different. She doesn't sit down at Jesus' feet. She approaches him, right, direct on. She's almost pointing fingers at him. Very different. Uh, Mary, of course, is listening to his teaching, whereas Martha is trying to convince Jesus to get her away from doing that. Now, Martha has her own trajectory, which uh, we won't talk about today. She has an amazing path that she goes on, a transformation. But the important thing we see there is how Jesus is now defending her. Notice, Mary says nothing in this passage, nor in the one we just saw. It's interesting, right? She gets accused twice of doing something wrong, and both times Christ comes to her aid. But one thing is necessary, and that's taking the time. So we see a very big contrast we're going to see between Judas and Mary. There's no, anywhere in Scripture, now it's an argument from silence, but there's no example in Scripture where it ever states that Judas sat at Jesus' feet listening to him. It never happens. Now, you could argue and say, well, you're just, you didn't, doesn't expressly not say that. And I agree. I'm the first to admit that. It's an argument from silence. But what we're, we're seeing here is a stark contrast where she's taking time. And that's critical for us to examine our own hearts. Does that have the priority in our lives? Not just to take the 5, 10, 15, 50 minutes, whatever it is in the day to be in the Word. The question is, 24-7, are my thoughts, are my heart's attitudes... Are they checked with Christ on a regular basis? Because when I screw up, am I quick to ask forgiveness? Or do I let that laundry list pile up, pile up, pile up, pile up, pile up? And this was one of the big differences between Judas and Mary. So we see, she sat at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching and recognized what was necessary. Well, the next one is where Mary is at Lazarus' resurrection. That's a pretty cool story. Uh, I won't read all 44 verses. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, which is fascinating because that event hasn't happened yet. John is writing here, and he's going way back in time here, talking about an event that's going to happen afterwards, which is very cool because John is actually out of sequence in certain places on purpose. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's bizarre. That, that doesn't seem in keeping with 
the way you would expect Jesus to act. It says he loved Martha. Just imagine for a moment if, you know, if you have kids, if one kid to happen to text you or phone you right now and say, you know, I, I fell down the stairs and I, I'm at the bottom. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be there in a couple hours. Right? I just, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute, right? So he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer. Now, of course, we know the story, right? We know what happened, so it, it loses some of its punch. If this was the first time you were going through it, you'd be coming to the man who'd been healing people left, right, and center, and he's not showing up, and he's not coming. It asks us the question, are we willing to trust Jesus when he doesn't act the way we think we sh- he should act? You know, as people, we, we understand one another, and you have... One of the reasons why society is possible is because we have an expectation and a reasonable expectation of how somebody else is going to act in a particular scenario. If people were completely haphazard all the time, you wouldn't have a culture. And so we approach this when we come and talk to Christ. And so he doesn't work the way we think he does. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Why? Probably because Mary is so quiet and she wants to avoid conflict. She doesn't want to have conflict. Even here, she's quiet. She doesn't want to come out and ask Jesus and confront him or at least have that barrier of conflict. But later on, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we know that, that Lazarus is raised from the dead. So the key here that we understand with Mary Total opposite of Judas. A servant of Jesus trusts in his timing and power. It's a cliche. God's trains are never late. God's trains are always on time. But they really don't run on our schedule. And sometimes the challenge is that for weeks, months, maybe years, they do. I mean, that subway schedule is bang on. I mean, that's like Swiss or German trains. They're right on. And all of a sudden, it seems to unravel, and it doesn't work the way we think it does. So story three, this is where Mary anoints Jesus. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, there's nothing really expressly said about the gospel there. There's nothing there where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That doesn't come up here. But symbolically, he's telling us many, many things about what it means to follow him and to love him. Therefore, that's kind of a tricky word because when you hear the word therefore in the Bible, you have to figure out what it's there for. We ask ourselves the question, well, this is not a logical conclusion. If Jesus were to have come to your house and you're having a meal, it wouldn't logically result in, oh, Jesus is here. I got to go and get all of my expensive, expensive ointment and bring it and anoint his feet. But here it says, therefore. Well, why? No, nobody else did that in the Bible, as far as we can tell. So, so what's, what's going on inside Mary's heart to want to do that? Well, Mary saw Lazarus was raised from the dead. That was number one. We heard that story already. Mary knew that Jesus would rise from the dead. It's fascinating because the disciples were around Jesus for three-odd years, something like that. 
And they didn't get it, even though when you read different passages, Jesus point blank tells them, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise up. And they're just like, what? What's, what's happening? And they, they almost feel like they're deer in the headlights the whole time. It's so bizarre. But Mary's got to totally figure it out. So somehow there's something where she has spent time thinking. Maybe she wasn't talking as fast as the disciples were, you know, trying to get the information. Somehow in the quietness of her own heart, and I, I suspect it has something to do with her having sat at the Lord's feet both figuratively and literally. And Mary knew because Jesus would rise from the dead, he would raise her up also. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is going to vouch for you on Judgment Day? That's awesome. That's awesome news, and she knows that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So why is she doing that? Because she's figured all this stuff out already. She's figured out what took the disciples till after the resurrection to figure out. So therefore, because she knows that she's preparing him for burial, she knows that he's going to resurrect her. She could have sold it, used the money for herself or the poor, but she gave it to Jesus because she's preparing him for death, and it's a sign of her surrender. Are we surrendered to Christ? Are we surrendered to him? In our heart's attitude, can we honestly say, Lord, here's my life, my time, my money, my talents, my worries, my problems, the things that aren't working out, I'm willing to lay them at the cross. I consider my life of no value or precious to myself if only that I may finish my course. Her hair is symbolic. Twice it mentions that. She took her hair. What, what is symbolic about that? You know, sometimes when we look back at the Bible, there were certain Jewish customs that we just don't practice anymore. And back in uh, the Jewish times, uh, Jesus' time, women always had their hair up. Now, nothing wrong with having your hair down, of course. They just changed that custom over the years. But during Jesus' time, that was a big, big no-no. Your hair had to be up. And if it was down, it represented that you were likely a woman of low repute, maybe even a prostitute. And so it was highly, highly faux pas to take your hair down, especially in front of somebody like Jesus. Like, that was just a no-no. So in Jewish culture, they wore their hair up. But Mary here is signifying that she's not concerned about cultural norms. Her love for Christ overrides her love for culture. There's nothing wrong with loving things around us. But there's a difference when we allow the culture to dictate to us how we're supposed to love. Now, hair is just symbolic. Again, it's just symbolic. But our culture tells us what we should and should not do. And many of those cases are completely unbiblical. So the question is, where do we draw our clues from, our cues from in life? Is it from the Word of God? Or is it from our culture? And we always feel we have to, you know, be a friend of the world and a friend of the, of, of the Bible and a friend of Jesus. Are we always trying to make sure that we don't upset the apple cart in our culture? And that's the church's number one job, is to be that salt and that light. And that only happens, as Mary taught us, is to be spending time in the Word, to be spending time serving, being together, worshiping God. Because that's what keeps us salt. If the salt loses its flavor, 
What's it good for? It's good to be nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand it gives light to all who are in the house. Wiping Jesus' feet is symbolic. Mary likely anointed his head first. It's, it's, it, it would have been custom more to do that, but either way, it doesn't really matter. So anointing her, his feet is a symbol of humility and recognizing the lordship of Christ. And it's interesting because shortly afterwards, Jesus, before that, had put that into Mary's heart, right? No good, every good gift comes from above, right? So Jesus put that into her heart. And what does Jesus teach his disciples to do right after that? Here's Mary who's doing Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus teach his disciples to? Well, soon after that, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Whoever wants to be greatest must be servant of all. Mark 10 and 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Are we willing to serve people around us? Especially those who have no chance of returning the favor. I love this verse. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's no extraneous details in the Bible. There's nothing, well, he just threw that in there. No, everything is there for a reason. Every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So why is it important that he tells us the fragrance filled the room? Why is that important? The smell of the perfume is symbolic of how Christ's humility in us affects those around us. You want to make a change in the people around you? You want Christ to use you, to use me in my workplace, in other things that wherever we're involved with? That battle is won and lost in our private thoughts, in our heart's attitude, and the time we spend on our knees with the Lord. The things that we do with other people to see, that's a result of what's happened inside our heart and our private and our quiet time. And so... This, uh, again, it's a shadow for the verse that the Apostle Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So as we serve Christ, as we love him, as we spend time serving other people, other people are going to recognize, they're going to know there's something different, but not from the outside out, from the inside out. So that's the symbolism that the gospel is giving us here about that. Mary shows how we can trust Jesus so we can be generous in our service to him and others. We'll talk in a moment about the amount of money that was involved in that particular part. And again, I love, I just love how Jesus comes to her aid. Judas, that actor who played Judas, he was bang on. You can just see the, the seething resentment that he has, right? And Jesus comes to Mary's aid. And I love how, how he's compassionate and loves the quiet, humble, gentle spirit that Mary has, and he comes to her aid to protect her. Well, not Judas. Judas is now the other side of the story, and he is the opposite side of the story. Whereas Mary loved to spend time with Jesus, loved to serve, loved to give up things, didn't care about the cost of money. Here's Judas. It's bizarre. The guy knows exactly how much it costs. <laughs> I mean, you walk into someone's house, you think, well, how much is that car worth? It's just, it's just crazy, right? But he knows. Probably asked beforehand. Maybe he figured it out. Whatever. The average worker back in Jesus' day earned, say, a denarius a day. 
So that would have been a, a day's wage. And so if you work 50 weeks, six days a week, in a given year, you could have 300 denarii saved away, provided you didn't spend anything. So think about how long it must take you to save an entire year's wages. It maybe, maybe it takes 10, 20 years to save up an entire year's worth of money. It's an entire salary that she's done. So why did Jesus, uh, Judas, why did Judas want the perfume sold? What's, what's, what's at his heart? Well, he heard a story from Jesus. Judas was evil, no doubt about it, but Judas was not stupid. He was walking around Jesus, and instead of sitting at Jesus' feet, he's now trying to take Jesus' words and use them against him. The Pharisees were famous for that. So are the Sadducees, right? They heard what he said and always tried to test him, test him, test him. So what story was Judas probably referring back to? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and do what? Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And Judas latches onto this story and says, I'm using your words, Jesus, and I'm going to attack this precious young saint who loves you. I'm going to attack Mary and accuse her of doing something evil. It all sounds so good, right? It's using scripture. But what's his motive? Again, what somebody says and what somebody does is important, but not nearly as important as why they are doing it. What motivates us? He was hoping the perfume would have been sold so he could keep back some of the money for himself. The money is symbolic, though. What's the money symbolic of? Why is Judas so concerned about the money? Judas doesn't want Jesus. He wants himself. And Judas wants to secure his position in this life, and he thinks money can do it. So he looks at Jesus, and he's a little ticked off with Jesus because he's been with him now for three years, and Jesus isn't doing what Jesus, he thinks, is supposed to do, which is get rid of these Romans. We're the inner crowd. We're going to be the big kings now in Israel, and we're going to have tons of money. And so to help me on my way, I'm going to start taking some of that money before I get into this big position of power that he thinks is coming to him. Completely misses the entire point. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. So he had this heart full of money, always wanted the money, always wanted the money, and now he's figured something out. Again, Judas was evil, but he wasn't stupid. He understood what was happening. He'd made a mistake. Many people believe that Judas actually didn't want Jesus to die. He just wanted to prod him into action to finally fighting off these Romans and taking his rightful, rightful throne. So what's happening? What was happening in Judas's heart? After that particular segment... Judas goes out and he hangs himself. But there's a tiny, small, symbolic act that he does that is fascinating. Sometimes the greatest insights into character are just the tiniest, tiniest things that you see. What does Judas do after he says he wants to have his mind changed so I, what I did was wrong? What small thing does he do before he goes and hangs himself? 
and throwing down the pieces of silver. He gets rid of the money. What's he trying to do? Here's the fascinating part. We hear it in the book of Acts. We hear it in the book of Acts where that one man, he loved the apostle Paul, he loved the Holy Spirit, and he thought he could do what? Thought he could buy it. What's Judas doing here? He's taking his almighty money, and he throws it in. Why? What's he doing? He's trying to buy his forgiveness. That's why Peter and Judas are so different. You could argue that Peter was actually worse because he denied Christ three times. Judas did it once. Now, that's a debate. I'm not here to argue one way or the other, but you could make a strong case to say that Peter might actually have been worse than Judas. But Peter goes out and weeps for repentance. What does Judas do? I don't have Jesus. <laughs> I got rid of him a long time ago. I got the money. I got my 30 pieces of silver, and that's what defines me, so I'm going to give that back. I'm going to pay back so I can get my conscience cleared. And what happens? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Does he come to the cross? No. He goes and hangs himself because he's got no tools left in his pocket for repentance. So why does he throw the money down? Why doesn't he give to the poor? Because whenever we build our identity on anything but Christ, that false self will eventually let us down. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. For Judas, it was money, but the money is just symbolic of anything we want outside of Jesus. It can be symbolic of achievement, status, success, also failure. Failure can be an identity in people's lives. I failed at this, therefore I'll never do anything for Christ or God will never use me. Total lies. And the worst one is good works as a means of salvation, believing that if I live a good, clean, moral life and do this and this and this, that God will see me and accept me. That's not true. We learn that here at communion. Christ only accepts us on the basis of his own blood. So to close off, we have two motives for serving Jesus. First is Mary, the second is Judas. How can you encapsulate this into two simple sentences? For Judas, the end game is about me. Individualism in our culture today was alive and when there, well there. It was all about me. Mary, it's about Jesus. The symbolism of the hair, symbolism of the fragrance, the symbolism of the broken pieces of bread, the symbolism of the cost of the perfume to anoint Jesus. What's our motive in serving Jesus? Are we looking for how Jesus can benefit us? Of course we can come to Christ with everything. Is God our forgiver? Absolutely. Does God restore us? You better believe it. He restores my soul. There's no doubt. But are we looking like Judas to be identified apart from Christ or with Christ? Because if we're identified with Christ, when he leads us down difficult paths, we're willing to stay with those paths. If we're with Judas... We jump ship when Jesus that we thought, we constructed in our mind, doesn't match up. This is Indiana Jones, and I'll close off with this little clip here. Indiana Jones and Cosmo in the Last Crusade, and uh, he's going for the cup of Christ, which of course is, is, is fictional, that's not in the Bible, but um, he's going after it, and this Chasm guy is trying to protect it. And at the end, Chasm asks Indiana Jones what I think is a fascinating question. He says, quote, ask yourself, why do you seek the cup of Christ? Some of you know it. 
Why do you seek the cup of Christ? Is it for his glory or for your own? And that's the difference between Mary and Judas. Is it for his glory or for our own that we're following Christ? May God bless you. May God encourage you. And may the love and the peace and the passion of Jesus inspire you and motivate you and motivate all of us to continue following him, both in our private life and our public life. Amen.